This is episode 142 of Beyond the Bulletin, published on October 28th, 2022. Hello and welcome to episode 142 of Beyond the Bulletin. From the University of Waterloo, I'm Brandon Sweet, editor of the Daily Bulletin. And from Media Relations, I'm Pamela Smythe. On this podcast, we go beyond the pages and pixels of the Daily Bulletin to inform you about important news and views from our community. Coming up, James Skidmore, director of the Waterloo Center for German Studies, is back on the podcast. He's here to discuss an oral history project that resulted in a new book penned by students and faculty members. Thank you for joining us as we go Beyond the Bulletin. Hey, I have an update. You do? Do tell. Remember Baxter Naday, the student who told us about his quest to identify a thousand plant species within 50 clicks of campus? It was episode 127. Mm-hmm. He did it! He hit his number on October 23rd. Really? What was, what was the, winning, uh, the winning species? It was the rayless annual aster that put him over the top. Now, is that, is that a plant that was, like, already named or extant around here, and he just found uh, an, an example of it, or did he actually find a new species and name it? He was the first person to identify it in our area for this iNaturalist site that's hosting the 1,000 Species Challenge. Oh. And he's still counting. Way to go, Baxter. Yes, good work. Now, here's what's been happening. First, more than 2,500 graduates received more than 2,600 degrees during the University of Waterloo's 125th convocation that took place on October 21st and 22nd. Degrees and diplomas were conferred across a total of four ceremonies held in the physical activities complex. I always think it's interesting that the number of degrees is greater than the number of students who are graduating because it means that our Waterloo students are just doubling up here and there with extra diplomas and certificates and citations and, you know, extra little things bolted onto their, uh, to their degrees. So congratulations. Thank you to all of the volunteers who helped to make this convocation a success. I was volunteering in the Chancellor's robing room this time. Oh, wow. You know, I do love me some regalia. A lot of pomp and circumstance. It was a lot of fun. Very, very cool. Speaking of the Chancellor's robing room and the Chancellor, who plays an important role in convocation, Dominic Barton, the University of Waterloo's 11th Chancellor, has committed $1 million to support the next generation of talent at Waterloo. Barton is a well-known leader in global business and a philanthropist, as well as a key supporter of the university. Barton's gift will fund several initiatives, including a new award for Indigenous students, an international travel program in the School of Accounting and Finance, and the growth of Waterloo's Velocity Entrepreneurship Program at its new home in the Innovation Arena. For details on the impact of the Chancellor's gift and the way it supports the university's strategic plan, check out the full story on Waterloo News and the Daily Bulletin. We'll put the link in our show notes. And as October turns into November, we are coming up on flu season again. And so Health Services is pleased to offer the flu vaccine through appointment only for Waterloo employees, students, alumni, retirees, and students' family if they are registered with the Family Health Clinic. Those considered uh, high risk will be able to get their flu vaccine starting on Wednesday, October 19th. And high risk eligibility is as follows. All children between 6 and 59 months of age all pregnant individuals, adults with chronic health conditions, individuals over the age of 65, indigenous peoples, healthcare workers, 
and household contacts of those who are at high risk. Appointments will be opened up to other people in the U Waterloo community starting the week of November 7th. Please call 519-888-4096 to make an appointment with Health Services. On Monday, October 17th, our faculty deans once again marched through campus dressed as characters uh, from a beloved work of fiction, this time Alice in Wonderland. It's part of their annual challenge, asking their Senate colleagues to step up and donate generously to the University of Waterloo's United Way workplace campaign. In past years, they've dressed up as characters from Sesame Street, Star Wars, The Wizard of Oz, as well as Star Trek. And this year's march included hopping a ride on the Watanabus, our own autonomous shuttle. So, of course, our listeners probably want to know who was dressed as what, or who was dressed as who, as the, uh, as the caterpillar said, who are you? And so we've got Dean of Arts Sheila Egger as the Queen of Hearts, Dean of Environment Bruce Frayne as the King of Hearts, a rather tall King of Hearts, actually, De- <laughs> Dean of Health Lily Lou as Alice, Dean of Science Bob Lemieux as the Mad Hatter, Dean of Engineering Mary Wells as Tweedledee, and rounding things out, Dean of Mathematics Mark Giesbrecht as Tweedledum. I love it. Sheila's Queen of Hearts was amazing. And Bob Lemieux, he had a definite Johnny Depp, Tim Burton, Mad Hatter vibe. Everybody look great. This year's selection includes many homemade treats, some Alice in Wonderland-inspired gifts, and a scale model of a 16th-century man-of-war. More than 35 items are available for purchase. The auction will end on October 31st, making it a great option for some early holiday shopping. Details are available online, and we'll put the link in our show notes. Now, here's what's coming up. The world's leaders will meet in Egypt from November 6th to the 18th for climate change negotiations at the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, or the UNFCCC, their annual conference of the parties. This event is also uh, blissfully known as COP27, because it rolls off the tongue a little easier. The University of Waterloo, through the Waterloo Climate Institute, has been an official observer of these conferences for many years. For COP27, the Institute will send an in-person delegation of top student leaders and faculty researchers to represent the university, bear witness to the negotiations, and foster an informed conversation about the climate crisis at Waterloo. On Wednesday, November 2nd at 2.45pm, you can join the delegation on campus for the Road to COP27 event. It's a discussion of the crucial issues that need to be tackled. There will be a chance to learn about COP and the expertise that each of the delegates brings to the table, spanning topics of health, governance, energy, and communications. We'll put a link to the event in our episode show notes. There's still time to fill out the Fall 2022 Student Experience Survey, or SES. The SES is administered by the university's Survey Research Center in collaboration with Institutional Analysis and Planning, the Associate Vice President Academic, the Associate Vice President Graduate Studies and Postdoctoral Affairs, the KEEP Learning Team, and the Student Success Office. The SES is open to undergraduate students and course-based master's students. This survey is intended to be ongoing. It'll be once per term as a pulse check for students. It's also a way to gather feedback on strategic initiatives and to understand students' learning environment and experience. Now, I should clarify that only a select number of students have received an invitation to complete this survey, and students can log in to learn or check their email inboxes for the link to the survey to see if they've been selected to complete the SES. 
The survey is open until October 31st, and students who submit their responses will have $5 added to their Wattcard account. How's that for an incentive? Students can log in to learn or check their email inboxes for the link to the survey. The annual What It Is conference will be held in person at the Science Teaching Complex, or STC, on Wednesday, December 7th. Registration is now open and will remain open until Thursday, November 24th. On the registration page, uh, University of Waterloo employees may need to log in before they register. I still think that looks like Wattitis, some kind of ailment. <laughs> At the conference, you can network with other IT professionals and learn more about information technology initiatives at the university. Hear from a variety of presenters, including two keynote speakers, the Director of Sustainability at Waterloo, as well as the Head of Sustainable Impact at HP Canada. For more information about what it is, visit uwaterloo.ca slash what it is. And that's what, W-A-T. We'll put the conference and registration links in our episode show notes. Perhaps there's a secret third pronunciation where it's like what IT is. And now the interview. The Waterloo Center for German Studies is launching a new book today that is the culmination of years of work and engagement with our local community. Students and faculty interviewed more than 100 members of the German-speaking community to document their experiences in Canada. Most go back to the aftermath of World War II. The conversations are reflected in a new book called Germans of Waterloo Region. Here to talk about it is James Skidmore, professor and chair of the Department of Germanic and Slavic Studies and director of the Waterloo Center for German Studies. Skid, welcome back. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be back. I feel like I need to explain, like I do every time you're on the podcast, that I call you Skid, and probably every single person who knows you on campus also calls you Skid. But you are, of course, James Skidmore. <laughs> yes, I am. I am both. For those who don't know, what is the Waterloo Center for German Studies? Waterloo Center for German Studies is a research institute at the University of Waterloo. There are a number of research institutes on campus. Uh, and it's so it's an endowed research institute, meaning that the funds were raised through fundraising campaigns in the community. And the center supports uh, research in any aspect of German studies. And by German studies, we're not thinking of just Germany, but we're thinking of the, of the German-speaking world. And so we support research by, we sponsor a book prize, the first book prize of scholars. That's been become a very popular activity we undertake. We have a set of scholarships that we offer students to travel uh, for overseas uh, language learning, mainly. And we also then support cultural programming, programming in the community of things of interest for, uh, in, in, uh, that are connected to the German-speaking world. And I guess one of those things is this new book, uh, mm -hmm. Germans of Waterloo Region. That's right. Well, congratulations to everybody involved in its publication. Now, yeah, thank you. It's not quite a cast of thousands, but there were many people involved. <laughs> How did this oral history project begin? Well, not a cast of thousands, but you're right. There are a lot of people involved and members of the local community, uh, Marga Weigel in particular, a, a supporter of the center. Uh, approached the then director of the Waterloo Center for German Studies, Matt Schulze, and said it's, they would like to encourage the center or, or help sponsor the center to do some research into the uh, lives and experiences of German Canadians who 
came to Canada and came to the Waterloo region in the aftermath of the Second World War. And because a number of of German Canadians in the community did come at that time. There have been different waves of migration, if you want to call it that, to, of German-speaking people to the area. And But this latest or last big wave, if you want to call it that, occurred after the Second World War and lasted into the 60s or so. Mm-hmm. And so these people established themselves here, and they wanted the centre to conduct uh, an oral history project that would record some of their experiences and undertake to understand a little more about what they went through emigrating from a war-torn Europe or post-war Europe to to Canada and re-establishing themselves here. Why is it important to document that experience? It's important from a research perspective because it, it there's a lot to be learned about how different populations that go through migration kind of experiences how those experiences transpire, what what happens when when communities or peoples emigrate either by choice or are forced to emigrate into new societies and to understand how that adjustment takes place, what occurs when that happens. It's also important from the point of view of the of the people who experience that themselves. And I think in the case of the German Canadians, what was important was to have a sense of, I guess, validation might be the word, that, that their experiences not be forgotten, that their experiences be recognized in some fashion. And so a scholarly work like this that allows the people to give of themselves in terms of you know recounting their experiences, reminiscing about what happened to them, providing that kind of raw data, raw information is important for them that, that, that they get a sense of being heard and listened to. And then the scholars can work on that and from that help people understand the experiences of these people in particular and then the more general experiences of immigrants, you know, generally. Hmm. Right, because they're coming after the Second World War. So what makes their experience unique or important to learn about? You know, that's 70, 80 years ago. And you're looking at a at a world that where communication wasn't as instantaneous as today. Maintaining contact and uh, was just much more difficult. I think it's an interesting study in in you you see in in some of the interviews or you see in some of the information collected how for these people as they moved to Canada in the fifties and sixties and then established themselves here and. The society moved along and they did how their uh, connections to their former homelands changed, you know, very little contact. And then due to changes in communication, due to changes in, you know, the geopolitical situation of Europe, how the contact evolved over time and, and what have you. So I think that's very interesting. Mm. It's also very interesting to understand that the experiences of, of German Canadians after the Second World War were you know difficult you know they came as uh, members of a of a state that had been defeated by Canada and its allies in the second world war when you imagine that some of these people were were emigrating to the waterloo region less than 10 years after the end of that war mm. they experienced some hostility they experienced some 
reticence on their own part to be, you know, coming to a society where that they'd just been at war with. It's 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 a very difficult kind of situation, mm-hmm. and it's and it's interesting. I guess it's interesting or it's important to understand how that transpired in some way. On we we know how it transpired in terms of you know how the state supported these things and what have you and programs and whatever were in place to support people in these in these uh, migrations. But to know how people experienced it firsthand from their own perspective as the immigrants, that that can make it even more interesting. How do you gather this information? You seek out people who are willing to share their stories with you. And you and so it's a lot of networking with the community and connecting with members of the community and saying, you know, we're uh, the centers working on this project. Would you like to participate? Some people said no, of course. They didn't want to participate. Many said yes. And you're researching with human subjects, so you have to go through the uh, ethics approval process of the university. That's all done. And then you set up interviews with these uh, folks. The the interviews were mostly videotaped. We uh, employed a number of our own students in our department, graduate students, to conduct the interviews. Oh, a whole set of questions are kind of organized and, and put together. Of course, the conversations go off in their own directions, as, as is often the case. But there were experiences that the that the research team was interested in. It's all oral, and you need to put it into written form so that you can work with it. Just under 120 people were interviewed. These interviews last an hour or more, mm. and you have then you have this whole body of data that you have to work through. The next aspect of the project was then to to write the book. So Matt Schulze and the other two editors, um, Grit Liebscher and Sebastian Siebel-Achenbach, all from the University of Waterloo, they organized chapters that would deal with particular topics, and uh, researchers from the center would be paired with graduate students to then write these chapters. So, for example, I wrote a chapter uh, with a graduate student in our department, Lisa Rosen, and that was a nice experience, like to 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 do it that way. So, but that's a standard kind of approach to this kind of research. You collect the data, you analyze it, you then present it in some fashion that others can then make use of it. That sounds like a huge undertaking. Almost 120 interviews. You're interviewing uh, people who are they're talking about their lives. So you have to be very sensitive about it. This can be quite a change, right, to to move from one society to the next under certain circumstances. So it requires a lot of uh, empathy and uh, mindfulness about that. When when a person experiences some event, you know, moving from one country to another, and they try to describe it and explain what happened, and it may not jive exactly with with the historical record mm. because it's because that's natural you know any one of us who has to recount what they did a month ago or a year ago or 10 years ago we'll we'll get things mixed up with regard to dates and and all of that kind of stuff that can then become something that has to be figured out and sorted through in terms of you know doing this kind of research that and that's just one example when you're dealing with oral history was there a common experience that you saw was sort of woven through the stories? Well, one thing that I was struck by, and this is something that came up in the chapter that uh, Lisa and I wrote, 
in the old understanding of migration is you leave that country and you move to a new country and that old country is in the past and your new country is your present and your future. And more modern theories of migration are understanding that it's it doesn't the, the old country doesn't end and the new country uh, you're only in the new country. There's a transcultural notion that you're you're never fully in one or the other society. It's like a it's almost like a a spectrum where you're kind of floating back and forth between the two in a way. Mm. And so then reading some of the interviews and Lisa did a very good job, for example, of finding the, the material where, where uh, some of the respondents spoke to this and understanding how they, well, they're sort of in between these two places. They're part of this new society, Canada. They're still connected to their old society, whatever part, part of German-speaking Europe they came from. And sometimes they're more a part of the one, but at other times, say, they go home for a visit. They might where they originated from, they might feel more attached to that. Around certain holidays, they might feel a real attachment to their old country, to their where they originated as opposed to their new uh, country, Canada. It just reminded me of the of what any kind of immigrant or refugee might go through in those situations. I years ago in a previous life, I worked with a refugee aid agency in Saskatoon, and. I was a young guy then, and uh, a young buck, and I didn't really understand the. I didn't understand the world. You would talk to immigrants we were working with then, and they would, they would kind of explain that to me, and I didn't. I kind of got it, but I kind of didn't. When working on this chapter, for example, I, it really reminded me of that experience too, and just it made it much clearer to me just what a transition it is to to shift between societies like that in a more or less permanent fashion. Mm. I travel a lot or I've lived in other places, but it's never it's never had a sense of permanence to it. When you migrate from one country to another, uh, especially after a, an event like a Second World War and you're, uh, you're displaced and you're migrating under those circumstances, that feels like such a change in your whole your whole life, your whole outlook. And what impact did that have on people? The the whole range of, of impacts you can imagine. Many of the, the German speakers who settled in Waterloo region were successful in various uh, you know sectors, automotive trade and manufacturing, property development, things like that. So there's been some very successful stories. Uh, some returned, not many, but some would have returned. And so there's there's stories about that. A number of people, uh, while they're grateful to be in Canada, uh, they felt um, a sense of loss of what it, what they'd had to leave behind in terms of memories, in terms of family in some cases, that sort of thing. Uh, there's a whole range of, of emotions or feelings that people would experience. How much do they talk about the war and what happened during the war and what they were doing during the war? A number of the people who were interviewed who were, um, were at that point called displaced persons, so what we might today call refugees, were people who had lived in German-speaking areas of Europe that weren't part of what is Germany today. And so they, uh, as the war came to a close and Germany's borders started to shrink again and uh, there was a real push from the east, 
to push Germany back from its expansion. Uh, a number of these people then, as the as the Soviet troops were pushing uh, westward, these folks then moved ahead of the of the uh, Soviet and Allied armies to, uh, to 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 go closer and closer to the heart of Germany and. As a result, they had to leave behind homes and you know where they'd where their families had lived for generations, and they had to they ended up in uh, Germany, and Germany in the late forties was uh, was not in good shape. You know, the war was over, but there was uh, there were some hard winters issues in terms of. Uh, supplying people with the necessities of life coupled with the looming cold war you know the 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 the, the breakdown in the relationship between the soviet uh, union and the other allies uh, caused problems as well and so a lot of people just thought that they saw no uh, especially younger people would have seen no great future for them in germany because even even though they were in Germany where they spoke the language, it didn't necessarily feel like home if they had been forced out of their original, where they'd grown up, say, in the former Yugoslavia or parts of Poland or other areas. Being in Germany already felt like they were not a foreign country, but in a, a place that didn't feel quite like home. Plus the sense that what would be the economic future what does the economic future look like what does the political future look like uh that spurred then this this desire to to emigrate well they landed though in a region that already had a very strong german speaking community what effect did that have on them well i think that you know that was by design you know that the, that they came to an area where there was already a german community that that they that they could connect to in some way. I think it had more of an effect on the German community already present in, mm. say, the Waterloo region. Uh, it led to the establishment of of numerous clubs, you know, German clubs that now host Oktoberfest, for example. And they didn't; those clubs, most of those clubs, didn't exist until you had this new influx of primarily German-speaking. Migrants who, who then formed clubs that would allow them to reconnect with their previous homeland. So, like the Transylvania Club, for example, which uh, supported uh, Germans who who came from areas further east of of what is now Germany. Mm-hmm. That had an effect on our our city, uh, KW, and surrounding area more so than than one might have expected. For example, were there any surprises in what was gathered from people? I think what was interesting is, so a number of the students who worked on the project come to Waterloo to study from Germany. So we have a strong uh, joint MA program, for example, with the University of Mannheim. Mm -hmm. The students who came then were then working on this project. Okay, so a couple of different groups of students were involved. They knew nothing about this German diaspora. They knew about the existence of the German heritage in the area, but they'd never been sort of connected to it in a direct fashion. They they may not have met any German Canadians or really understood what what it was like for the people to migrate in the 60s for example to Canada. And so I think for them that was not a surprise but a, maybe a bit of an eye opener 
uh, to learn what what people went through in moving to Canada. Isn't that interesting? Like I thought that was one of the best aspects of this of this project was that the students would gain a deeper appreciation of German Canadian society, if we can call it that. What would you like people to take away from the book? I'd like them to see that the the experiences of of this community of the German Canadians that they're they're really human experiences. What they experienced as immigrants to Canada is instructive to all of us. One thing we're becoming more and more aware of or just we're just realizing more is that there is so much migration in the world. The, the, the human beings are always on the move and societies are uh, our groups within societies are migrating to other areas of the world uh, for various reasons, economic, uh, war, they're forced to leave their, where they're living, what have you. And I think whenever we study any group like that, we, get, we gain a greater uh, appreciation for what it means to, to leave home for whatever reason, you may want to be leaving home because of good job opportunities or whatever, but you may be forced to leave home because of you have for whatever reason. But whenever you do that, it's it's a great adjustment. It may seem like less of an adjustment nowadays because we have instant communication and we have the ability to travel is much easier than it was. But there's still it's it's a whole shift in mindset and in understanding your identity, who you are in relationship to the society you're living in. And you can kind of go from being an insider to an outsider, uh, and you have to come to terms with that, and you have to come to terms with adapting to new language, uh, to new cultural um, norms. It's, it's important for all of us to understand that, that that's what migrants uh, go through. And then in the the Waterloo region context, just understand what a group of people who whose presence in the area uh, contributed to what the area is today, to understand their origins and to and where they're where they're coming from, both literally and psychologically, culturally. I think that's important. How important was it for this project that it be students and faculty members who are working together on the chapters? I think it's it's a good mentorship opportunity for the students. It's, and it's not like the students do all the learning and the profs do all the teaching. I, I learned a lot working with Lisa. Oh. And 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 I can only say personally, working with students in a in in that kind of capacity is just it's enriching intellectually. And it's enriching personally. I mean, Lisa and I have become friends, and you know, she invited me to her wedding when she got married, which was really, German weddings are small, and to be invited to a wedding like that, that's really special, and things like that, you know. And um, and I know that uh, others probably had similar experiences, and I, I think that's just a, it's one of the best parts of a job like this, is when you get to work with the students directly and help them move forward in their uh, intellectual development and in their career, but also just to, to work on an idea and, and, to, and to see it come to fruition. That's a, that's a wonderful experience. Well, the Waterloo Center for German Studies is launching this book the day this podcast yes. episode comes out, October 28th, 2022. Where can people mm -hmm. get the book? The W Print Shop is printing the book for us for the launch. And I expect they'll have some copies available, but via Amazon, so you can get a copy that way. Uh, you can also um, go to our website, wcgs.ca, 
and you'll find a link to information about the book and where you can order the book. Great. We'll put a link to that in our show notes. We expect to have copies available in like some local bookstores and things for sure. Hmm. Well, as you say, it'll provide some insights into the early experiences of people who are a large part of our community. Yes. Well, thank you so much for being here. I'm excited for this book and I'm so pleased that it's out. Yeah, thanks, Pam. I appreciate the interest and really happy that you've uh, helped tell the story to a few people. Really appreciate that. Well, that about wraps it up for us this week. To ensure you don't miss an episode, please subscribe to the Beyond the Bulletin podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And please recommend us to your colleagues and Waterloo alumni. You can find us on Twitter at UW Daily Bulletin. Select interviews are on the university's YouTube channel. Just look for the Beyond the Bulletin playlist there. You can reach us by email at bulletin at uwaterloo.ca. As always, thanks for listening as we went Beyond the Bulletin. Well, the podcast comes out on October 28th, which means that Halloween is just around the corner. If if your area on campus is being decorated or if you and your colleagues are dressing up, uh, please take a photo and send it to the Daily Bulletin at uh, bulletin at uwaterloo.ca so that we can feature your spooky submissions on our website. Happy Halloween, everybody.